Father, I pray that you will just grab our attention from the very first verse and hold us focused. May we not miss a thing, Lord, but but truly fill up on what you have to say. Father, may, may we be open, Lord, to your truth, even if it conflicts with what we think of as our truth. Because we understand, we know, Lord Jesus, there's truly only one truth. And that is you, the way, the truth, and the life. And so, Lord, we seek to know what the truth is. And as we go through these couple of chapters, even if there's something that might rankle our feathers, something that we don't like the sound of, something that bothers us, Lord, ah, that's not necessarily a bad thing. May we be bothered right into your arms that we might truly walk the lives you've called us to and understand the joy that comes from living the way you invite us and encourage us to live. And may our eyes ever be open for the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and we pray for His coming as much as we pray, Lord, for those who don't know Him right now. God, that is the divine tension in our lives. We so desperately want You to return, Jesus, but we also so desperately want friends and family members, people we know, to give their lives to You and be saved by You. And so we pray in Your perfect timing and knowing that Your will is perfect, we pray Your kingdom come, Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And until that great and glorious day when you call us home, we pray that our lives will be motivated to share and talk about you. So fill us up tonight, Father. Lead us, teach us, Holy Spirit, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I hear back there. That's why we call it a cry room. (laughs) Judges chapter 4. We have met three judges so far in this study. And I realized something just a couple days ago I had missed in looking at these three judges. We have not only seen three judges, we have seen three spiritual principles for Christian living. And I think it's so great when when these things just kind of pop out of the Scripture and you see them and go, Wow, I, I, I missed that completely. We can see in these three judges, and we talk about this all the time, that the Old Testament portraits or pictures that we see in the Old Testament, for every one there's a New Testament principle. We see that the illustrations in the Old Testament, we get illuminations in the New Testament. We understand what is being told to us. It's not just a history book. And true, they are historical accounts. Everything that we read truly happened. It's all a matter of truth. But it also is so full of pictures. These three judges are a picture of three principles for our Christian living, the way that we can live our lives. The first judge we looked at was Othniel. Othniel, we're told in Judges chapter 3, verse 10, that the Spirit of the Lord came upon him and he judged Israel, or he delivered Israel. And the same is true of you and of me. That when the Spirit of the Lord comes upon us, not just within us, but comes upon us and empowers us as witnesses... We can be in the role of deliverers. Again, not by our power, not by our grace, but the grace of Jesus that we can share with others. We can be tools, instruments of delivery from difficult places and darkness and lostness in life. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14, Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man. Where does the strength come from? Not only just to be a Christian, but to walk 
in the fullness of, of Christian living, the strength comes from the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Just not like Othniel, the first judge. He is empowered by the Spirit, so you and I in our Christian lives, principle number one, are empowered by the Spirit. Principle number two, the second judge, Ehud, effectively handled that sharp two-edged sword. In 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15, speaking of a different sword, says, Be diligent to present yourselves approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, accurately handling the word of truth, the word which is the sword. The Word of God, Hebrews 4.12 tells us, we talked about that on Sunday, how the sword went into Eglon, that sharp two-edged sword went in and the stuff came out. The refuse, the junk, that's what happens in our lives is the Word gets in us, the sin gets out of us. And it's a powerful thing. I came to really believe and understand this just probably about four and a half, maybe five years ago. I started to realize the truth of Isaiah 55, verses 8 through 11, where the Lord says, My word, which goes forth from my mouth, does not come back to me void. It doesn't come back empty. It accomplishes what I send it out to accomplish. Man, when that verse finally got into my head and I started seeing the reality of that, man, just teaching the Word has such dramatic impact. Hearing the Word, studying the Word, it changes us. You can't help but be changed by the Word. And so we've got this picture, Othniel, the Spirit of the Lord in our lives, Ehud, driving that sharp two-edged sword in, the Word in our lives, accurately handling the Word of truth. And three, the third judge, Shamgar, who struck down the enemy by the service of his hands. See the three principles, the, the spirit, the sword, and the service. And these are three aspects, three principles for Christian living. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 4, he said, In everything we commend ourselves as servants of God. In much endurance and afflictions and hardships and distresses, in beatings and imprisonments and tumults, in labor, sleeplessness, hunger, purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, in the Holy Spirit, in genuine love, in the word of truth, in the power of God, by the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left. And we asked the question last week when we took a quick look at Shamgar, verse 31 of chapter 3. Shamgar who struck down 600 Philistines with an ox goad. An ox goad, the tool of a farmer. Shamgar was a farmer. What did he have in his hands? He had the ox goad and God said, fight for Israel and he fought with what he had. And it's a principle for us. We serve with what we have. We don't worry about what someone else has. We don't look over at other Christians and go, Oh, I wish I had that gift. I wish I had that ability. I wish I had that strength. No, we just serve with what we've been given. What do you have in your hands? Powerful stuff, gang. That we have the Spirit of God in the inner man. We have the sword of the Word. And then we have whatever it is that He's put in our individual hands with which to serve Him by the Spirit, the sword, and service. Three principles of Christian life, three men, these first three judges. Three great men who give us these pictures, these principles for Christian living that I believe really brings about deliverance. And not just for ourselves, but for those around us. People receive deliverance when they are touched by someone spirit-filled, sword-ready, and serving. So these three men, awesome start to the book of Judges. I like looking at them. In fact, the nice thing about these first three is we don't see much as far as big mess-ups in their lives. We don't see them sinning. We just kind of see them following the Lord, and that's a good thing. We'll also see the fourth judge tonight, 
And the fourth judge doesn't show us a big picture of sin either. The fourth judge is really enjoyable to look at. Then we'll get to the fifth judge, Gideon. Fascinating character, Gideon. That'll be an awesome story. We'll get to that prayerfully next week. But tonight, the fourth judge is the only woman among the judges. Because deliverance is not just a man thing. Deliverance is a woman thing as well. Empowerment by the Spirit is not just for men, it's for women as well. Rightly handling, accurately handling the word of truth, it's not just a man thing, it's a woman thing. Service in the body of Christ and in the field of harvest is not just a man thing, it's a woman thing. And I am so thankful that God included, called Deborah to be the next judge of Israel. Deborah. Judges chapter 4 and verse 1. Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died. It's a cycle of, cycle of judgment right there happening again. Compromise, chasing after other gods, crushed by their enemies, crying out to the Lord, compassionate deliverance by the Lord. They come back to God and they compromise. And almost every chapter starts out with, Then the sons of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord after Ehud died, or after whichever judge it is passes on. Verse 2 it says, So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. And the commander of his army was Sisera, who lived in Herosheth Hagoyim. Herosheth Hagoyim. Hagoyim is a hint as to where this location is, where this happens, where these guys are, are ruling and reigning from in Israel. Hagoyim means of the Gentiles, which might, you Bible students, might ring a bell for you. Galilee means the place of the Gentiles, the region. Galilee of the Gentiles. This whole story tonight that we're going to study happens in the region of the Galilee, specifically around a very famous mountain in Israel, Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor. So there in Hadzor, which is up in the north, and, and Herosheth Hagoim, this Jabin king of Canaan, and Sisera, his, his commander of his army. And it says, verse 3, The sons of Israel cried to the Lord, for he had 900 iron chariots, and he oppressed the sons of Israel severely for 20 years. Now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapido, was judging Israel at that time. Verse 5 says, She used to sit under the palm tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the sons of Israel came up to her for judgment. Jabin, king of Canaan, is oppressing Israel from Hatzor. Hatzor means castle or stronghold. And his stronghold, again, is locationally up in the northern region of Galilee. It's about eight and a half miles north of Lake Kinneret, or what you and I call the Sea of Galilee. It happens right there in this region, right around Mount Tabor. The fighting that will take place, we're going to read about Deborah's battle with Barak, her her commander. It's going to happen there at Mount Tabor. Mount Tabor has been called the belly button of the world. And it's interesting, if you see it in person, if you see a picture of it, it looks like just kind of a big navel, an Audi. It's not an Indy, it's an Audi. But it's right there in the center of Israel. It's been called the belly button of the world because of the way it actually looks. Well, here comes Deborah, fourth judge, and there are three things just to note right off the bat about Deborah. Three important designations. First of all, her name means the bee. Deborah means bee or honeybee, which is a good name for Deborah because this woman is doing all of it. This woman is a happening chick. She obviously lives up to her name, Deborah the Bee. She's governor, she's deliverer, she's a warrior, she manages a household as a mother, she's doing it all. 
What's interesting to me about Deborah, and you'll see this in a bit, is that if she had her way, she would just be a mom. That's how she wants to identify herself. Not as Deborah the warrior, Deborah the great, Deborah the prophetess, Deborah the leader, but it's Deborah the mama. That's how she wants to be known and remembered. But her name simply means the bee. And she is a busy woman, busy like a bee. Secondly, Deborah is the wife of Lapido. What's curious about this is it's, it's an unusual name for a man in this time. In fact, we don't see in the scriptures anyone else named this. And it's curious. It may well have been the name of a man. But if you look at the phrase in the Hebrew, it doesn't say the wife of Lapidoth. It says the, a woman of Lapidoth. She's a woman of Lapidoth. Well, Lapidoth is not a place either. It may actually be a description of Deborah. Because Lapidoth means fiery. Deborah, a woman of fire. Deborah, a fiery gal. It also means lamp, one who, who lights the way. And that's exactly what she does. In fact, we know Deborah has the fiery heart of a prophetess. Like Jeremiah, who would come later. Jeremiah chapter 20, verse 9 said, If I say I will not remember him or speak any more in his name, if I say I'm just going to ignore God, I'm tired of the ministry, I'm tired of preaching, I'm tired of teaching, and I'm tired of prophecy, I'm just going to ignore the Lord, he says, then in my heart it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones. And I am weary of holding it in, and I cannot endure it. I can't keep it in, Jeremiah would later say. I have such a passion, such a burning fire in my heart to teach people about the Lord. I've got to let it out because it just burns me up if I don't. And Deborah's the same way. Deborah is, number three, a prophetess. Deborah the bee, Deborah the fiery one or the wife of Lepidos or a woman of fire, depending on how you look at that. And number three, Deborah the prophetess. Now this is important and interesting because Deborah is one of six named prophetesses in the Bible. First one we saw back in Exodus chapter 15 verse 20 and that was Miriam. Miriam sang that song and she prophesied. And so she was listed as the, as the first prophet that we see, prophetess that we see in scripture. Secondly we see here Judge, uh, Deborah in Judges 4 and 5. Deborah is the second one. We'll, we'll read about Huldah when we get to 2 Kings chapter 22, verse 14. Huldah. Then we get to the first false prophetess mentioned in Scripture, Noadiah. Noadiah in Nehemiah chapter 6, verse 14 is a false prophetess. We read about in Luke chapter 2, verse 36, we read about Anna. And then there's a sixth prophetess who is also a false prophetess mentioned in Revelation 2.20, also mentioned in the Old Testament, and that's Jezebel. So Jezebel and Noadiah are two women who are prophetesses, but they are false prophetesses, and the rest are li listed as prophetesses, true prophetesses. <laughs> Deborah's rise to such a prominent, important role in Israel, especially in those days, indicates something. It indicates that this woman was highly respected by the men. And she had to be because she had an intimate relationship with the Lord. Being a prophetess, she heard from the Lord. She talked to the Lord. She listened when the Lord was calling. She was close to Him and that alone garnered the respect of men like Barak, who you'll meet in just a moment. And ladies, listen, when you have that kind of relationship with the Father, even the most boneheaded of men will sit up and take notice. They will hear you. 
I've shared in here before, one of the saddest things to me, but it is it happens a lot in churches, is, is the wife who comes and the husband's off at home or doing other things and the wife is just praying and praying that her husband will get saved. Her husband will make a decision for the Lord eventually someday. And, and I've seen women who will just nag their husbands. Why didn't you ever go to church with me? And she'll come, oh, the Bible study was great tonight. You missed another one. Oh, I wish you were there. You know, Obviously, football was more important. And that never works. It never works. It just makes a man go, whatever. But a woman who loves the Lord, a woman who prays and listens, a woman who serves her husband out of respect for Jesus, that kind of a woman will win her husband. That's the way Peter says to do it. He says in 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 1, and I know we've read this before, it's important to read again, in the same way you wives, be submissive to your own husbands, so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives, as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. Your adornment must not be merely external, braiding the hair and wearing gold jewelry or putting on dresses, but let it be the hidden person of the heart with the imperishable quality of a gentle and quiet spirit which is precious in the sight of God. Deborah is used mightily as a prophetess because she's listening. At a time when very few, if anyone else in Israel is paying attention to the Lord, Deborah is. She's in prayer. She is silent before the Lord. And because of that, it tells us that she was judging and the, and the people came up to her for judgment there at the tree of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. Her respect, this is saying prior to the battle, prior to the fighting, prior to the warrior status. She is just a judge, a deliverer who is close to the Lord and that draws people to her. Now one more thing before moving on. So far in Judges, we have seen three seasons of servitude. We've seen three Judges coming up to the fourth. We've also seen three seasons of the people serving under the oppressive weight of the enemy. The first season of servitude was under Kushan Rishah Taim of Mesopotamia, or just Cush. It's easier to say. Cush of Mesopotamia, and the children of Israel served Cush for eight years. Eight years. After that, Othniel delivered them and they got 40 years of peace. Second servitude, and I'm telling you this for a reason, so listen. Second servitude, Eglon, king of Moab, now reigns over Israel for 18 years. First one was just eight years. Second is 18 years until Ehud and Shamgar come along and they deliver Israel and there is 80 years of peace. But Israel rebels again and they come under now the third season of servitude under the Canaanite king Jabin and they now have to serve him for 20 years. And there's a progression here. The first season of slavery is 8 years. The second is 18 years. The third is 20 years. It's getting bigger. And remember, every single time it happens, they fall into slavery, it is the Lord who puts them there. Why? For discipline. But he's turning the screws a little tighter every single time. Eight years of slavery. Okay, Israel, do you get it? Yes, Lord, we get it. Save us. Good, okay. Then I'll bring you out of slavery. I'll deliver you. And they didn't get it. So he says, all right? Punishment's a little longer this time. I do this as a dad. Okay, you're grounded for the weekend. And if the behavior repeats itself, maybe you just didn't have enough time to really think about what it was you did wrong. So you're grounded for a week. And if the behavior repeats itself again, I guess you just needed more time. 
And that's what the Lord is doing, I believe, here with Israel. He is allowing the slavery to last a little bit longer, be a little bit heavier, a little bit more difficult every time because they're just not getting it. And it's the discipline of the Lord. But listen, gang, the punishments reveal the patience of God. His punishments. I know that sounds a little odd. His punishments reveal His patience. How is that? Because the Lord could have driven Israel immediately out of the land. He could have said, look, I I brought you in. I gave you conquest under Joshua. I led you through the world. I did everything for you. Here you are. And you're still rebelling? That's it. You're done. Into the sea you go. But we see a patient father saying, all right, you're not getting it. I'm going to have to punish you a little longer. And then he delivers. And they don't get it. So he has to punish again. And then he delivers. And back and forth, we see this patient God methodically teaching, disciplining the people of Israel to pay close attention, to listen to him. Eventually, sadly, Israel will be completely driven from the land, but for a remnant of Jews who have always been there, the vast majority of the people will lose their inheritance for a long season because of outright rejection of the true deliverer, Jesus Christ. But we see a patient father. Don't forget the patience. Even in times where you're feeling punishment. Even in times where you said that maybe the Lord is disciplining me here. Recognize, remember his patience. The Bible says, Peter says in 2 Peter 2.8, The Lord is not slow about his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you. Not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. I watched a Glenn Beck special, I think I mentioned this maybe on Sunday where he was interviewing Tim LaHaye and Jerry Jenkins and Joel Rosenberg just about end time and the end of days and he asked Jerry Jenkins about you know when do you think Jesus is really going to come back and Jerry Jenkins says boy I hope it's not for another thousand years and that shocked me like a writer left behind is saying I hope it's another thousand years and he said because there are so many people who don't know the Lord yet and he said the compassionate side of me says wait Lord wait just a little bit longer But he said, the reality is, as I read the signs and I look in the times and seasons in which we live, I don't think it's going to be another thousand years. He is coming back. And the seasons are showing us this and the signs are very clear all around us that the days are short. But the reason we're still here right now is because the Lord is saying there needs to be more time. There's still one more can be saved. Just one more can be saved. Open your mouth. Say the name of Jesus. Speak it into people's lives. Tell them about Him because there's still time right now. Even though time is running out, there is still a little bit of time. God is patient. But, Peter says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. That's what I call global warming. It's going to happen. It's not global warming like they're talking about it today, but this world is going to be very warm very quickly. But God's patience with Israel can be seen and that in spite of their rebellion and his punishments, he keeps raising up these judges. But one more thing to consider before we go on. The word judge, shafat in Hebrew, again, it means to govern, but it also means to deliver. To govern, to deliver. And verses 4 and 5 could rightly be read, Deborah was delivering Israel at that time and the sons of Israel came up to her for deliverance. I know your translations say she was judging Israel and they came to her for judgment, but it also could read deliverance. It works both ways. Any given day, in any given court in America, 
the judge, can either deliver you or can condemn you. That's what a judge does. He has the power to go either way. Either deliverance to liberty or deliverance to penalty, the judge is a deliverer. He can deliver you to jail or he can deliver you out the back of the courtroom to freedom. He has the power to deliver. And Jesus is that perfect judge. In fact, Jesus said in John 3.17, God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but so that the world might be saved through Him. Oh, good, so He's not going to judge me. Well, John chapter 5, verse 21 says, Just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son gives life to whom He wishes. For not even the Father judges anyone, but He's given all judgment to the Son, so that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. And I hear Jesus say that, and I say, yes, Your Honor, (laughs) because He is the judge. You might say, well, wait a minute, I'm confused. Does Jesus judge, or does He save? And the answer is yes. Yes, He judges, and He saves. But it depends on which side of the law you happen to be living on. Whether you're judged or you're saved, whether you're delivered to liberty or delivered to penalty, it depends on which side of the law you are on. Because Jesus Jesus is both judge and deliverer. And if I'm on the side of righteousness, the judge delivers me to liberty. If I'm on the side of rebellion and sin, the judge will deliver me to penalty. And you might say, well, Rick, it sounds like you're saying we have to keep the law to be on the side of righteousness. I'm not saying that. I'm saying Jesus kept the law perfectly. He died on the cross to make us righteous so that we could be on the right side of the law and be saved. But he is the judge that will do both. The judge who saves and the judge who condemns. And the only way to stay on the right side, on the side of righteousness, is to come to the real deliverer for deliverance. Well, this is uh, Deborah. Deborah the bee, Deborah the wife of Lepidoth, or the fiery one, Deborah the prophetess. In verse 6 going on, the story begins. It says, Now she sent and summoned Barak, the son of Abinoam, from Kadesh Naphtali, and said to him, Behold, the Lord, the God of Israel, has commanded, Go march to Mount Tabor, and take with you 10,000 men from the sons of Naphtali and from the sons of Zebulun. I will draw out to you Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his many troops to the river Kishon, and I will give him into your hand. And then Barak said to her, If you go with me, I'll go. But if you will not go with me, I will not go. So we got Sisera and we got Sissy, okay? We got Sisera who's fighting for the Canaanites, and we got Barak who's saying, Not if you don't go, mommy, I got, I got to have some skirts to hide behind here. I got to have you with me. Barak is the general of the forces of Israel, and his name even means lightning. But he's unwilling to strike. He's not willing to strike out on his own. He says, I'll go with you, but I won't go by myself. Deborah, you've got to come with me. Now, some commentators have said, well, it's because he wanted the power of a prophetess with him. He wanted to make sure he was checking and testing God's word. I don't think so. I don't think so. And the reason is Deborah's response, which we'll get to in just a second. But it's a clear picture. Barak is a clear picture of the problem Israel faced in its day. And it's a problem that I believe the church faces in this day. And it's lack of male leadership. It's men abdicating the place that God has called them to be. 
Ladies, it doesn't mean that I'm saying you need to, you need to, you know, just shuffle away and be in the back rows and, and let the men, I'm not saying let the men do all the work in the service or let the men lord it over you because leadership, according to Christ, is never lording it over anyone. True Christian leadership is service, but it's lacking big time in Israel in the day of Barak. He's the best they've got. And he doesn't want to go to war without Deborah. He's got to bring her along with him. And this is important. In fact, keep your finger here and flip over to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 for just a moment. Gang, I truly believe when we function in our God-given roles, there is order in the house of God. When we function the way God created us and developed us and prepared us to function as men and as women in our rightful places, in our roles, then there's order and God does things and things work. When we subvert or lord it over or abdicate our roles, things get into disarray. 1 Corinthians 11 verse 8. It says, and, and Paul has been talking about a woman, woman covering her head when she prays, and he's getting into some cultural mores there. But after that, he says, man, verse 8, does not originate from woman, but woman from man. And I say, preach on, Paul. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but woman for the man's sake. And I go, yes, Paul. <laughs> Therefore, the woman ought to have a symbol of authority on her head because of the angels. Why because of the angels? I have no idea. Reading on. Verse 11. However, in the Lord, neither is woman independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. And I say, huh? And Paul says, for as the woman originates from the man, so also the man has his birth through the woman, and all things originate from God. Paul says, listen, male, female, there are roles. Yes, the man was first created. Yes, the woman was created for the man. Why? Because he was lonely and he needed companionship. He needed her there. There was a need in man. There was an emptiness in man. And the Lord saw it and created woman to be there alongside man, side by side, by the way, in the garden until the fall. Go back and read Genesis. It wasn't until the fall of man that suddenly man was put in this place of lording it over and the woman in the place of fighting for that rule herself. You read about that in Genesis 3. It is a curse that left us struggling for that place of authority in our relationships today. It was a curse. It was not the original created order of things. The original order was perfect. Man and woman together. Working side by side in the garden, living there in great peace and comfort. There is a reason for the roles and order to the very sexuality of male and female. And gang, when we function in these roles, we function at our best. And we function the way God called us to. And Israel is not functioning that way at this particular time. Barak won't go unless Deborah goes with him. Now again, I said a moment ago that that we'll see that it was because Barak was being wimpy. Listen to Deborah, the prophetess's response, verse 9. She said, I will surely go with you. Nevertheless, the honor shall not be yours on the journey that you are about to take. For the Lord will sell Sisera into the hands of a woman. And then Deborah arose and went with Barak to Kadesh. Before anything happens, Deborah says, Barak, I'll go with you. But you've just lost your honor. Because you wouldn't just go out yourself. Because you wouldn't be a man. You've lost your place of honor. Well, it goes on and says, uh, verse 10, Barak called Zebulun and Naphtali together to Kadesh. 
And 10,000 men went up with him, and Deborah also went up with him. Now Heber, the Kenite, had separated himself from the Kenites, from the sons of Hobab, the father-in-law of Moses, and had pitched his tent as far away as the oak in Zeanim, or Zeananim, which is near Kadesh. Verse 12. Then they told Sisera that Barak, the son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor. What's going on here? This guy Heber. And there's a relationship all the way back. The, the Kenites came out of, or were related all the way back to Moses, father-in-law of Moses. Moses married a Kenite woman there in the wilderness. And so there's this group of people that come, that, that come down the line from that. Heber is one of those, but he separated himself from the Kenites. Why? Because at this time, the Kenites were aligned with the Canaanites against Israel. And Heber says, no, I'm not going to do that. I'm aligning myself with Israel. And you might say, well, if he's aligned with Israel, why does he tell Sisera that Barak is up at Mount Tabor? Why does he give this away? Listen, it's not selling secrets. It's setting him up. Heber and his wife, who you will meet in a few minutes, knew of Sisera, knew something about him, or maybe they, they actually knew him, but they knew he was a toady under the bully rule of Jabin. So they set him up. They're luring Sisera to go up to Mount Tabor because that's where the battle is going to happen and that's where the Lord is going to conquer Sisera. Well, verse 13 going on, Sisera called together all his chariots, 900 iron chariots, and all the people who were with him from Harasheth HaGoyim to the river Tishon. Verse 14, Deborah said to Barak, Arise, for this is the day in which the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Behold, the Lord has gone out before you. So Barak went down from Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. Verse 15, The Lord routed Sisera and all his chariots and all his army with the edge of the sword before Barak. And Sisera alighted from his chariot and fled away on foot. Note on verse 14, The Lord is going before you. The Lord's going before you, Barak, Deborah prophesies, and indeed he does. In fact, chapter 5 indicates that the Lord sent an unreasonable rainstorm into the region. And that rainstorm came down and Sisera's invincible, invincible iron chariots got stuck in the mud and became useless. I told you a couple weeks ago that this exact same thing happened in the War of Independence in 1948 when Israel was fighting and there was a small kibbutz and the advancing Arab armies were about to take them down and an unseasonable rainstorm came down and they got stuck in the mud and they just got picked off one by one by the Israelites in the kibbutz. God still is doing these types of things. But back here, these iron chariots, which by the way were the technology of the day, this was a modern weaponry. Israel at this time did not have iron. They hadn't entered the Iron Age of Israel yet. They still were working with bronze, which was not as hard a metal, softer. But these iron chariots were thought to be unstoppable until the Lord sends some rain. Well, more on that in a minute. One, one other thing, I, I do have to tell you this. Baal was the god of the Canaanites, the god of the skies, the weather system. If it rained, they thanked Baal. You know, if it was warm at the right time, they thanked Baal. They thought Baal was the one who had complete control. And when the rain starts coming down, that's part of the reason I believe the Canaanites fled. Because Baal bailed. <laughs> he left them high and dry or, or, you know, stuck and wet. I don't know. But he never shows up. In fact, over and over throughout the scriptures, every time Baal is called upon, he never shows up. I think eventually I would not want to follow that kind of God. 
One who never shows, but our God reigns. Our God shows up. And so he does in this story. He shows up. He sends down the rain ahead of the army. And the Canaanite army begins to flee in fear. And even their commanding officer, Sisera, man, he turns out to be a sissy himself. And he runs to hide. Verse 16. Barak pursued the chariots and the army as far as Herosheth Hagoyim. And all the army of Sisera fell by the edge of the sword. Not even one was left. Wiped him out clean. Now Sisera, verse 17, fled away on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber. There's his wife, Jael. The wife of Heber the Kenite. For there was peace between Jabin king of Hazor and the house of Heber the Kenite. And so Jael went out to meet Sisera and said to him, Turn aside, my master, turn aside to me. Do not be afraid. And he turned aside to her into the tent, and she covered him with a rug or a mantle to kind of hide him there. And he said to her, Please give me a little water to drink. I'm thirsty. And she opened a bottle of milk and gave him a drink. And then she covered him. Why would she do that? Well, a bottle of milk, this is more like drinkable yogurt. And they'd keep this stuff around. It would have been kind of warm and thick and with curds in it. And probably would help make someone just a little bit sleepy. Gives him a bottle of warm milk and tucks him into bed. And verse 20, he said to her, Stand in in the doorway of the tent. It shall be if anyone comes and inquires of you and says, Is anyone here? That you shall say no. And then he falls asleep. Verse 21. But Jael, Heber's wife, took a tent peg and seized a hammer in her hand and went secretly to him and drove the peg into his temple and it went through into the ground. For he was sound asleep and exhausted, so he died. And behold, as Barak pursued Sisera, Jael came out to meet him and said to him, Come, I will show you the man whom you are seeking. And he entered with her, and behold, Sisera was lying dead with the tent peg in his temple. And so God subdued on that day Jabin, the king of Canaan, before the sons of Israel. The hand of the sons of Israel pressed heavier and heavier until Jabin, the king of Canaan, upon him, until they had destroyed Jabin, the king of Canaan. Now, great story. It's another one, you know, following hot on the heels of Ehud and that, that sword that goes in and the fat closed around the sword and the stuff came out. I love that story. This is great too. Because now we got a tent peg in the head into the ground. And I'm like, this is good, like, this is man movie stuff. This is not stuff of a chick flick. This is, I watch this and go, cool. All right. And it's biblical too, which makes me glad. But there's so much in this story that we're going to have to leave this section until Sunday morning. And we're going to move on. This story, (laughs) don't roll your eyes at me, Danny. The story here is prose. It's a story, it's truth, it's history. Chapter 5, though, is the poetry of what happens in chapter 4. And I want us to look at chapter 5 tonight and listen to Deborah's account poetically of what happened. Moving from the story of chapter 4 into the song of chapter 5. Chapter 5, verse 1. Then Deborah and Barak, the son of Abinoam, sang on that day, saying that the leaders led in Israel... That the people volunteered. Bless the Lord. Hear, O kings, give ear, O rulers. I, to the Lord, I will sing. 
I will sing praises to the Lord, to the God of Israel. Lord, when you went out from Seir, when you marched from the field of Edom, the earth quaked and the heavens also dripped, even the clouds dripped water. And that's how we know that rain was an instrument that the Lord used to stick those armies of Canaan in the mud. The heavens dripped and the water came down. The Lord came there out of Seir and and probably in big, thick, dark clouds pouring out over the battlefield and just dumped water on it and caused that mud to rise and caused those chariots to get stuck. And as I said a moment ago, our God reigns. Our God reigns. When Baal takes off, when Baal is not present, which is always, our God is always there. He reigns. Now I want to give you a little prophecy note on iron chariots. Something to think about that is applicable to our day. Again, Israel had not entered the Iron Age. They were in the Bronze Age at this time. But the Canaanites had the iron weaponry and the mobilization to hold them for 20 years. They had the weapons of destruction then. They had the power on their side. They had the technological advantage. Yet all it took was a little rain to bog them down. Why is that prophetic? Well, as I mentioned, the same thing happened to the Arabs who attacked in 1948. But prophetically speaking, this is happening at Mount Tabor. Who knows where Mount Tabor is located? What is the name of the valley Mount Tabor looks down on? Megiddo. The Valley of Megiddo, the Valley of Armageddon, the place of the final battle. And when the armies of the world gather there, what's interesting in the Bible is that the the battle is described not as tanks and cruise missiles and planes flying overhead. It is described, gang, as hand-to-hand combat. In fact, the best mode of transportation in that battle that's even mentioned in Scripture is horseback. And some have read that and thought, man, we are advanced technologically today. We're in a totally different place. And I read in the Bible about them fighting hand-to-hand or on, or on horseback with sword and shield and buckler. And that's, that's the hype of their technology. Why is that? How can it be that in these days of cruise missiles and, and, and high-tech weaponry, how can, how can this kind of thing happen? And I firmly believe that the technology gang is going to go down. And that the battle of Armageddon will be a more conventional war than anything that we have seen in the past several generations. Why is that? If the technology does go down, people will have to fight this way and it won't take much. You've probably heard about EMPs, electromagnetic pulses. If you were to take a nuclear bomb and not drop it on America, but blow it up in the sky above America... You know, several thousand feet up, what would happen is it would cause an electromagnetic pulse that would knock out power, computers, everything that we're using electronically would be knocked out. Three, four states would be knocked out of power and, and unable to rejuvenate that power. And last year's power outages really bummed me out. We went out and bought a generator this summer just so we'd have one in case you know we have power outages this year. And you'll thank me for that because we probably won't have any power outages now that I went out and bought one of those things. But think about this. An electromagnetic pulse or two or three goes off. Everything, all of our high-tech warfare, it's done. We can't use it. And there we are in the Valley of Megiddo. And there the nations of the world are gathered together and nothing electronic works at all. What are they going to do? Conventional warfare. Which is exactly what the Bible describes. Cicero's army says, we've got iron chariots. Yeah, but what if it rains? 
then it does you no good. Yeah, well, we've got guided missiles. What if it rains 100-pound hailstones? What good are your guided missiles going to be then? Flip over to Revelation 16 quickly, or, or I'll just read this to you. You want Revelation 16 and verse 16, talking about that battle in Armageddon. It says, They gathered them together in the place which in Hebrew is called Har-Megeddon. And the seventh angel poured out his bowl upon the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there was a great earthquake, such as there had not been since man came to be upon the earth. Think about that. The worst earthquake in the history of the world. Think about every horrible massive earthquake. Earthquakes where thousands upon thousands of people have died. Not even close. This one will be worse than any before it. So great was an earthquake, was it? And it was so mighty. Verse 19 says, The great city, Jerusalem, was split into three parts. And the cities of the nations fell. Not the city, not a nation. All the cities of the nations fall in this earthquake. The entire world is going to just get a massive shaking. Babylon the Great was remembered before God to give her the cup of the wine of his fierce wrath. And every island fled away. Whitby is no exception. Every island fled away and the mountains were not found. This is a major, major shift. This is the big one. This is the big one. Knocks out the mountains, knocks out the islands, flattens all the cities. Massive earthquake. Where will our high-tech weaponry be at that point? Huge hailstones, about 100 pounds each, came down from heaven upon men. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, because his plague was extremely severe. I always think that's interesting because the punishment for blasphemy in the book of Leviticus is stoning. 